and welcome to What Is My Podcast About? This is the podcast where we sit down on a fortnightly basis and discuss a topic to make a podcast about. Uh, my name is Peter, and I am joined, as always, by Keith Ramsey. Hey. And Matthew Grace. Hello. I'm comfortable going back to saying Matthew Grace is always here. He's never leaving us again. I was just Please. more surprised you dropped the middle names this time. Oh, not only that, I dropped my own last name. I just said I'm Peter, but still gave you guys last names. I don't know what the fuck's going on. Clearly, I'm famous enough that uh, we only need my first name, but you guys still need a bit more name recognition, so we're tying on the last name to not get confused with the Keiths or Matthews. Yeah, it's not that we have no idea what we're doing. No, we're definitely not making this up as we go. Uh, that's not how we do this podcast. This is rigorously scripted and planned out in advance. Everything we say, we wrote particularly to hit the right demographics of our listeners. I don't even know what that word means. Good, Keith. You're still on book. Good. Um, Pause so for dramatic silence. Shit. <laughs> what's going on in the world, guys? What what has been happening these past few times? Days, well, weeks, years, whatever time. Is. I have a very important question for you guys. Are you a fan of Dino Crisis? Um, I'm going to let Matt field this one. I know Crisis. I can't say I've ever uh, played PlayStation it. PlayStation One game, which is just Resident Evil with dinosaurs. Sounds interesting, but also sounds like a horror game. Well, I can tell you that Capcom doesn't like it because they released a dinosaur shoot 'em up game called Exo Primal, and everyone thought it was Dino Crisis because one of the characters looks like the main character from Dino Crisis. Oh my god! But they've guaranteed us it's not Dino Crisis. <laughs> it's Exo Primal. Good to know what Capcom feels about this. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Literally, in the trailer, uh, the main character of Dino Crisis is Regina. So, kind of like, you know, late 90s combat suit that's, like, all latex, pretty much, and red hair. And then there's a character running around in the background with that, and it's not Regina. <laughs> in fact, they have, like, a, like, uh, like was it, kind of like a French accent? Nice. So it's not even like, oh, this is just Regina when she's, like, all scaled up. No. And then they're like, yeah, this is Exo Primal. It's a game about portals opening up and dinosaurs shooting out, which is still kind of Dino Crisis, but now it's kind of like Left for Dead, but dinosaurs. Huh. All we know for sure is that it's definitely not Dino Crisis. Yep, that, that's the one thing for sure. It could be any other game, but it's definitely not Dino Crisis. Un unfortunately. Maybe it's for the best. I know it is, but I'm still upset. That's that's fair, I guess. Who knows? You may get your new Dino Crisis. Can you imagine if, point. like, after the internet's reaction to this, fucking uh, Capcom's just like, fuck it, we'll make another Dino Crisis games. Are you happy? <laughs> no one's gonna buy it, but we'll make it anyways, just to prove a fucking point. We're and gonna remaster Dino Crisis 3. Now, considering I've realized I'm the only one who enjoys Dino Crisis, Dino Crisis 3 is hated by the fan base because it decided, you know what people loved about the first two Dino Crisis games? It wasn't the plot or the character, so we're going into space. That's, that's some pretty solid uh, game development skills right there. Space dinosaurs? Yep, on a spaceship. You've sold Matt on the entire series with that one line. Well, then I'm <laughs> sure you'll like Exo Primal. Hmm. Does Exo Primal also it. take place in space? No, it's in a city with portals. Sci-fi. Portals people, to space? Uh, there are uh, portals to some sort of space, and apparently the robot lady that's announcing the game uh, knows about it, and it's like, oh, warning, dinosaurs incoming, send out the team. The Exo Primal team. 
This is a crisis involving dinosaurs. Make sure you send out the Exoprimal team. Resolve this dino crisis. No, this they, is not dino crisis. If they fucking crisis say the word dino variety, if they say the word crisis anywhere in this game, people are gonna get more pissed. I know it. <laughs> That's why I really hope they do say crisis at some point in the game. Dinosaurs in the city. I want a crisis. Character to say this is a real crisis, and then turn towards camera, wink, and then them to never address it again. (laughs) (laughs) This is a real crisis, unlike that really crappy game. Uh, That uh, that was Capcom announcing some fun stuff. Uh, We also got an announcement that the Resident Evil Netflix series that uh, is coming, the live action one, uh, is set to release in July. Now, July. That's not too far out. Yep. It is a number of months that I don't feel like doing the quick math in my head to actually figure out. Maybe four. <laughs> yeah, all we really know is that this kind of follows somewhat like two siblings named Wesker, and apparently it's after the events of Resident Evil, but it's not in the video game or the movie universe, so I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's fair. Wait, it's in neither the video game nor the movie universe, so they're creating a separate universe for this animated, or not animated, this live-action series? Yeah, that's pretty much what's going on. Okay. I mean, it's a cool enough world that I'm curious to see what completely different story they set in it. Or maybe it's the same story, but just canonically different. I'm sure it won't involve a mansion of any sort and then zombies. Or viruses that are named after a specific letter of the alphabet. Like T or G or H or S. Or Ouroboros. Mushrooms. It might involve mushrooms. Delicious, delicious mushrooms that people eat. No other reference to mushrooms. I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of lost on this one too. Yeah. Uh, Me three. I don't know, I jumped to three. Um, me too. Uh, I have something I want to talk about, if you guys are cool with allowing me to talk about something for a second. I'll allow it. I'm not allowing you to talk. You can continue talking. If Thank you, you Matt. To you. Um, so, I recently saw a new feature film that's out in theaters um, uh, called The Batman. Uh I, I saw the new Batman, the the Robert Pattinson one. Sorry, Pattinson. Fuck. Uh, the Robert Pattinson Batman movie. Um, Robert Bat Batten Bat. Robert Batten Batson. Uh, yes, I saw that movie. Um, it's surprisingly fucking good. So, not that I like went into it with low expectations or anything like that, but I wasn't entirely sure what to expect. I figured Robert Pattinson would actually be pretty good because after seeing Tenant and other films he's done recently. I've come to realize he's actually a fantastic fucking actor, and you shouldn't judge someone by the movie that made them famous. Yeah, it's him um, and Hayden Christensen. Like, everyone seems to think that they're bad actors, but if you look at the work they've done, both are, like, really good. Yeah, they had a role that they unfortunately had to do in a bad movie, and I don't know Hayden Christensen's opinions of the prequels, but Robert Pattinson has, like... During interviews for Twilight, shit on the Twilight movie. Wait, so Twilight? Like, I thought he was from Harry Potter. Oh, he's also from Harry Potter. I guess I forgot about that. But, like, he has shit on the movies that people shit on him for being in. So, like, he is aware of what those movies were and wasn't thinking he was making masterpieces at the time. 
um, they were wildly popular and they got his name into people's minds, but he is not, that is not the sum of who he is as a person. So seeing some of his other movies, I figured he could actually do a solid job as Batman. Uh, this movie I found thoroughly enjoyable uh, to go back to the Batman. A couple of the key details that I really liked about it. Um, at no point did they feel the need to go back to Crime Alley and show the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Uh, they How allowed am that I to know be. About his motivations. They start off with him already being Batman and having been Batmaning for roughly two years at this point, um, causing problems, fighting crimes, all that jazz. Uh, and it's the movie. Uh, not to get too much into the plot, but it's less so about him becoming a hero and more so him deciding what kind of hero he wants to become um, over the course of the movie. It focuses a lot more on the Batman and a lot less on the Bruce Wayne aspect, which is perfectly fine to me. Um, yeah, no, I I just found it a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Uh, a way I have described it to people after seeing it is... Unlike other movies, which feels very much like a comic book movie, this just feels like kind of like a noir crime drama set in a comic book world. So it doesn't have very goofy, campy stuff that makes it feel like a comic book movie. It just feels like a movie that takes itself seriously and happens to exist in a comic book world. So I would highly recommend people go out and see it. Interesting. There's uh, also riddles, and riddles are always fun because riddlers. You like riddles. <laughs> Uh, so I also uh, saw a movie uh, these past two weeks, and I have the same uh, answer of it was actually not as bad as uh, I thought it was going to be. It was actually really good, and that was the Uncharted movie. Yeah, that's another one. Well, that's that, like, yeah. I didn't have low expectations. I just had no expectations one way or another for that movie because I figured the cast had potential, uh, and it was just one of those things where watching the trailer, it felt like I was watching cutscenes from an actual Uncharted game, so... Yeah, and the movie is very much the same way. The whole, the whole way through the movie, it didn't feel like, oh, this is like they're trying to, like, you know, change Uncharted into a movie or thing. It felt like this could have just been an Uncharted game that just happened to have real people acting out the parts. It was that good with the, it focused on the puzzle solving and all that stuff and not, you know, oh, this is Nathan Drake hanging off a ledge, throwing grenades at people, because that's how you get through this level. Yeah, I... I like that. I The Uncharted games are ones I'm fond of, so the idea that they made a video game movie that, from the sounds of it, they didn't feel like they had to change the video game to turn it into a movie is uh, pretty solid. Yeah, there is some minor changes to some of the plot background, because this is the origin that kind of leads into the video games. Uh, there are obviously some narrative conflicts with some of that, but... Uh, aside from that, I think this very easily fits into the world that's already established in a fine way. I think for a lot of people, the big question mark was actually Mark Wahlberg playing Sully, and I think he did a fine job. Like, it's honestly it just doesn't look like Sully. That's it. So I guess he didn't Sully the name then. Quite literally. Or he did, I guess. if he Literally, he did. But metaphorically, like you were implying, he didn't. If that makes sense. So he did a good job yep. and didn't ruin the name. Got it. Uh, also, the <laughs> final like set piece for like the big showdown with the villain. I like. I really hope they find some way to turn this into a game because that set piece was amazing, and I'd love to play it. Yeah, that's fair. There is a couple scenes uh, from the trailer, at least, that I watched and just thought this 
feels like something right out of the games, and I feel like it'd be fun to actually play this as a sequence. So. Actually, uh, I do have one thing. It, it's not really a spoiler. It's more of a cameo from Nolan North uh, in the movie. But in the trailer, there's the scene where uh, uh, Tom Holland playing Drake is hanging out the back of a plane and clearly falls out of the plane. Yeah. So, so uh, in the movie, he gets up to a beach after the situation happens, and he walks up on the beach, and Nolan North is sitting there. He's like, "Oh wow, what happened to you?" And he's like, "Fell out of a plane." He's like, "Weird. I feel like the same thing happened to me once." <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> fucking funny. And that's the whole Nolan North moment in the game or in the movie. <laughs> no, I like that. That's that's the way that kind of cameo should be handled. So that's pretty solid. All right, Matt. Time for you to contribute. What what movie have you seen recently? I haven't. I literally have not seen a movie. Uh, I can't remember what the last movie was that I saw. <laughs> what was the last movie episode that we did? Oh no! Oh god! <laughs> uh, I don't think we've done one since before you left the podcast. Like I don't think we've done a movie in the time since you came back to the podcast. So that says a lot. Yeah, because I think that when you went away, we literally did like nothing but movies there for a bit. Yeah. Uh, Eternals. Eternals would have been the last one you were here for. Okay, Eternals is the last movie that I saw. And that was in November. Yep. Uh, I should specify, uh, mostly because I want to cross-promote, because uh, I'm shameless like that. The last movie I saw is not The Batman. The last movie I saw is actually uh, End of Evangelion. Uh, which I watched for another podcast that I'm working on that everyone here should also listen to that podcast. Although, based on my understanding, I think we have more people listening to that podcast than this podcast, so if I'm cross-promoting, I should probably do it in the other direction. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's the last movie, and there we go. That's my only shameless plug. Um, All my other plugs are very, very shameful. Um, Shall we get into the topic if there's no other world news to discuss? Uh, There was actually three trailers that came out I want to talk about. Oh, fuck. Three trailers. Yep. Uh, First off, we got a trailer for the Obi-Wan series. I did not realize that dropped. Yep. uh, It has dual fates playing in it, so they know exactly the audience they're playing for. And we have that confirmation that Hayden Christensen is going to be appearing. That's actually super fucking hype. In fact, my favorite thing about this, too, was Hayden Christensen was in an interview talking about it, because everyone's obviously hyped that, you know, uh, we got Ewan McGregor returning as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And uh, I think Hayden Christensen's playing on it, and he's like, oh, Vader's much stronger than that last fight on Mustafar, so if you're an Obi-Wan fan, you better be worried. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) pretty much like, I'm going to kick the shit out of Obi-Wan this time in an interview. I'm going to beat up fucking Ewan McGregor. Not even Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm going to beat up the actor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi in the movie, and everyone has to fucking watch. Uh, And then also in that same Disney vein, we got a drop for a trailer for a series I'm very excited for, and that is Miss Marvel. Right, I did see that fucking trailer. That actually looks fucking phenomenal. Yeah, uh, Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel, is uh, a character in the Marvel Universe that I've been a fan of since she first appeared. So I'm very excited to see what they do with the character. Have you seen the trailer, Matthew? I have not. Are you familiar with Miss Marvel as a character, at least? I am. Okay. You could have just left it at I am, and we would have just trusted that (laughs) it was more than vaguely. Uh, No, that's fine. Um... Yeah, I would just 
recommend once we're done recording this, maybe go watch the trailer and decide if that's a series you want to watch, because I think it would be one you could theoretically enjoy. Yep. That sounded like a lot of hedging, I'm sorry. Uh, and then the last trailer was for a video game called The Quarry. And it's by the people who did Until Dawn. So they have another game, and it looks like it's a horror slasher with a bunch of people getting stranded at like a Crystal Lake-like campground, and we don't know what's going on. Huh. But David Arquette's playing the sheriff. Yeah, I literally just Googled the words The Quarry, and the first thing I saw was a picture of David Arquette's face. Yeah. In, like, animated form. But still very clearly David Arquette. I mean, that's what they did with Until Dawn, too. Yeah. So it's a bunch of actual actors who are digitized, playing roles, but in video game format. Intriguing. Yep. Uh, not much known about it, but if you liked Until Dawn, I'm assuming you'll be fine going into this game. So that's a big no from me. <laughs> it's a solid, a solid maybe for me. I mean, sure, I'll watch a playthrough of it. Like uh, some sort of like, like a streamer doing it. What? Like your own playthrough? No. God, no. Uh, you're specifically going to buy a VR headset so you can fully immerse yourself in the game. That's what, what I'm hearing. What if you play through it, record it, and then watch it afterwards? Mm, no, that no, that won't work. What if you play through it blindfolded so you don't have to watch the gameplay while you're playing through it the first time, but then have to watch the playthrough that you did earlier later? That might be a little difficult. Actually, I think, you know what? Yeah. I'd do that because <laughs> I would just end up watching an hour of footage of me just walking into a wall. Better. You'd only have to watch like a three minute video as you just walk into your own death very immediately. Or that and not be able to navigate <laughs> the menu to continue. <laughs> that's implying that him dying immediately ends the playthrough, though. Oh, that's true. Within, until dawn, that was not the case. So it might still be a long game. Well, then. Um... Now, is there anything left in the world for us to discuss? No, that was what I had. Fair enough. Uh, so, uh, for those of you who... I'm sorry, I almost forgot to say the sentence, and I know Keith and all of our fans would be disappointed if I didn't say the sentence. Oh, so, I would have reminded you and held this up until you said it. I know. So, for those of you who do not know what our episodes about, because you're my favorite type of audience member, and you don't read the title of the podcast before clicking play on the podcast... Uh, today's episode is actually a fan suggestion. Um, we got a couple of suggestions during Fanuary, and we missed this one, uh, and it probably should have been covered during Fanuary, and that's, you know what, as the person who reads most of our emails, I'll take full responsibility. This is my fault that we didn't do this during Fanuary. Uh, so a request from, uh, Matt LaPrade, LaPrade. I don't know, however you pronounce his name. He did name. this he last listen. time he did an episode. I know, but he didn't tell me how to pronounce his name since then, so I'm stuck with not knowing how to pronounce his name. Uh, uh, sent in a suggestion, uh, and this suggestion was for... Well, it was less of a suggestion and more so a question that we're turning into a suggestion. But his suggestion was... Or his question was, what are some pieces of media that questioned your philosophies, ideas, and outlooks on things, or just flipped some tropes on their heads? Um, so that is what we're going to be discussing today, is different types of media that changed the way we view the world, is how I'm choosing to shorten that into a tidier bite. Yes. Okay. Cool. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm I, waiting I, for your I, approval. We agreed on this before we started recording. <laughs> uh, I went into this more on the trope side of things because uh, float tripping or, you know, uh, kind of messing with expectations is definitely something I love in storytelling. So I have a lot of those examples. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I have a, a couple of them. Uh, one of the things on my list is um, more so there because of how it played with tropes, uh, and then the others are, I don't know, it was a topic where I just kind of picked things I like, and that's what I had talked about, but the things I like, I like because they did interesting things, so there we go. That's what I'm talking about today. Who would like to go first with a piece of media that had an impact on their life or played with tropes so this is more of a smaller one but uh it's not so much changed my outlook on life it was more of wait you can do that was kind of how the feeling came about and that's a book called the murder of roger Ackroyd by agatha christie uh either of you i've read some of her work i have not read that specific one it is completely yeah. alien to me yeah, it's a hercule perot uh novel and uh, essentially the I guess spoiler for this like really old book, but the big twist that ends up happening in it is that the character that we've been told the stories through is the killer without us knowing that's the killer. It just omits the parts of the story. So we're getting him in between things and then where the chapter should be, where he's committing the crimes is just gone. That, that actually is a pretty interesting idea. Uh, Kind of taking the concept of an unreliable narrative to its extreme, and that the narrator narrator is being sincere and you're getting honest information. They're just omitting information that uh, affects how you see things. Yeah, and they also kind of also from the beginning hint what's going on because the detective, when you know, yeah, he gathers all the suspects and he says, "Everyone here is hiding something from me, and I'm going to get to the bottom of all of it." And you have, I think, a lot of people just forget that. Oh, the guy who's narrating the story for us is also in the room when this happens. So, and you never just suspect him because he's the one telling the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where the person you initially trust most implicitly uh, in a mystery type novel where you're trying to solve a problem, the person you tend to trust the most is the person telling the story. Uh, and so, the reveal at the end that they were the person you should have trusted the least is. Always a bit of twist in things. I can yeah. see that. And this is, def- this is definitely not the first time this trope was subverted ever in the medium. Uh, another good example of a more recent one is Shutter Island, which I think did the, the twist just as well. Uh, yeah. But it was definitely the first time I encountered that trope kind of being like thrown out the window. It's like, yep, that was the killer. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> you could do that? That's fair. Um... No, I don't trust I, anybody. Not even myself. That's, uh, that's absolutely fucking fair. Uh, it's one of those things I've had to start conditioning myself to do every time I read a mystery novel or watch a whodunit film, is I have to keep reminding myself that just because someone seems like they're the person uh, trying to solve the mystery doesn't mean that they're not the person most directly involved in the mystery. Yeah, I mean, uh, Heavy Rain does it too, uh, with a... Uh... Scott Shelby being one of the four characters you play, who is also the killer. Yeah, you're playing the killer uh, who is... However, you don't play him as the killer, you play him as the detective trying to solve the murders. When he's actually just Um, getting rid of evidence. Yeah. Everyone is a suspect, even the ones that you trust the most. The thing to remember is when someone says everyone's a suspect, 
they're not saying everyone but me is a suspect, and you have to remember that they themselves are also a suspect, or at the very least should be in your mind. Yeah, but then why would Matt bring it up if he wasn't the suspect? Suspect Matt, of what? Matt is absolutely the suspect, and the crime is Matt's own disappearance from a couple months ago. <laughs> you have no evidence of that. We'll see. Um... I probably shouldn't say that on the podcast because the reason you went disappearing is if I remember correctly, the place where you work got like hacked or some shit and it fucked with your entire database. And I don't want to suggest that you're somehow responsible for that. So I'm going to walk back what I said. Uh, so I have a, another thing I'll, I can kind of bounce off of that one because uh, it had a similar idea going on. Um, uh, and it's uh, another book well, specifically a book series, not just an individual book, uh, but it's called the Mistborn series. Uh, and so there was two things I really liked about this one and that really kind of changed my uh, view on stuff. Uh, the first one is this one played with prophecies a lot in that uh, early on you hear the, they keep talking about like the prophecy of the hero. Um, and uh, so a lot of the first two books is Characters trying to fulfill the prophecy, get things in the right place so that they can uh, solve problems the way they need to be solved. Um, but that's not how it ends up playing out. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to come out and say, anytime we mention a topic in this episode, feel free to assume that there's spoilers for that topic coming up. It's mm -hmm. just a lot of the things we're talking about that changed perspectives and stuff like that had weird twists in them, and we're just going to have to talk about the twist to talk about how it affected us. Um, yeah, in the description below, I usually put the timestamps for each of these things, so if you see something you don't want to spoil, just like the next timestamp, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so, the whole idea behind uh, this prophecy is uh, it uh, one of the main characters finds it engraved into these big metal pillars uh, while he's investigating, uh, and he doesn't have time to, like, sit there, read the entire inscription, translate it, and get it all, like, properly formed. So what he does is he takes a charcoal sketch of it, like, uh, presses paper up against it, rubs it with charcoal, and, like, goes about translating it over the next little while. Um, and so the prophecy is all about how they need a specific hero to perform specific actions in order to prevent the coming of ruin and the destruction of the world. Um, but, uh... And a big part of that is they are going to have to find something called the Well of Ascension, and they'll have to stand in it to absorb its power, but r rather than using the power for selfish reasons, they have to release the power out into the world so it can bring balance back to life or whatever. Um, and so there's currently a High King who had recently found the Well of Ascension and has been using the power for selfish reasons. So a large part of the first two books is not only them trying to fulfill this prophecy, but also trying to defeat this High King and find the Well of Ascension for themselves so that they can right the wrongs of the past, release the power, bring balance back to the world. Um, and then right as they get access to the Well of Ascension at the end of the second book, um, they are tempted to use the power for selfish reasons because one of their friends dies. And so they're like, I could use the power to bring them back to life and everything would be right. Uh, but they end up remembering the prophecy and deciding to go forward with it, release the power, bring balance back to uh, back to the world, only for it to be revealed that releasing the power actually releases a great demon that is going to bring destruction unto the world, and that they had a, were supposed to use the demon's power so that he would stay sealed and wouldn't gain the power back himself. Um, 
which is the whole idea behind the prophecy. And it's even revealed that uh, the reason that the original prophecy was etched into stone, or not stone, into metal earlier on, is because this demon, with the limited power he has access to him, can change anything about the world except for metal. So while it was etched into metal, the prophecy was truly written of you have to use the power for selfish reasons. You have to use all of the power when it comes into you to ensure that the demon doesn't get any of it back. And when Buddy took the charcoal sketchings, the demon was able to manipulate what he had sketched because it wasn't in stone any or it wasn't in steel anymore. And so they were given the wrong prophecy, but it's a lot of a book about heroes trying to do things for the right reasons, only for it to be revealed that every step of the way they had been making wrong choices and had brought about ruin. So really fun in that it builds up this prophecy only for it to be revealed that the prophecy that you've been reading all along is just fucking bullshit. Fuck you for believing in things. As there's that old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yep. Uh, but as I said, there's two things I really like about this series. And the other thing I really like about this series is this is the first series I've ever read that had a very rigid uh, hard magic system in that like other series, they're like, magic can do stuff. And like when someone needs to do something, they just essentially use magic as an excuse for how it works. Uh, but in this world the author wrote down very specific rules of how the magic works in the world and that there are different metals and one can consume the metals or wear the metals to have specific effects. And the effect that they have is very clearly laid out and explained, but they don't allow that to limit them perfectly and say, well, because magic can only be used for like a telekinesis type thing, people only use it for picking up and putting down stuff. Instead, they're like, magic can only be used for telekinesis, but if you try and push something that's really big and heavy, instead you're going to push yourself away, or you could pull yourself to something that's really big and heavy like that. And so it involved a very rigid magic system, uh, which was the first time I had ever seen such a rigid and clearly defined, this is how the magic works, but then didn't allow that to kind of bind themselves and only use magic the way they described. They found ways to play with it, given the rules they had already followed or set up, and didn't break those rules at any point. So yeah, that's always the important part with a magic system, because if you make it too strict, it's kind of like, well, why bother using it? But if you make it too loose, then it's like, well, there's no stakes. Everything can happen. Yeah, so they managed to strike the right balance between it being a very rigid magic system where it was very clearly understood what the magic was capable of, but gave themselves enough room to play with it without breaking any of the rules they set up. So it's one of those ones that I found was the first one that kind of made me interested in creating magic systems of my own because I read that and thought, this is really cool and it's really well defined, but still shows you how you can have that wiggle room to create cool situations with a well-defined magic mm -hmm. system. So that's the Mistborn series. Nice. Now, you speaking there reminded me of another book series that I unfortunately only read in part back when I was younger. So, uh, I believe there was there were two parts to the series. There was Deltora Quest, which was uh, seven books revolving around a young prince and how he had to go on a journey to gain the respect of the seven dragons of the continent before he could ascend to uh, his seat of power. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, I only have the first three of those books, so I never got to finish that part. But the, I guess, sequel 
set of books. It was four books for by the title of uh, Dragons of Eltora. And that one really made an impact on me, mainly because uh, the whole uh, idea behind the Dragons of Deltora is uh, it comes to light early in the first book that there's something unsettling happening in the world. And so the prince and his two friends head out to try to figure things out. They, fir- they come across a part of a prophecy. And like, I find it funny that I can still remember the words to all four verses to this day. The first verse is, Sisters four with poisoned breath bring to the land a long, slow death. So they quickly learn that uh, there's these four creatures of some sort of dark power scattered amongst, or scattered throughout the land. And they're slowly spreading different versions of corruption or poison throughout the land from their source, from where they're located. And so, like, they find that first birth, that first verse, and through the whole first book, they locate and deal with the first sister. And then at the beginning of the second book, as you'd expect, they find the second verse. Death, death comes swiftly if you dare find each sister's hidden lair. And like, so it just expands a little more on the prophecy. So it just shows or just goes as a warning to tell how dangerous these creatures are. And it's very evident in how as a young reader's book series that it was, uh, they went really dark in some of the descriptions. Because I remember reading the third book. And uh, there was one aspect in the third book or one night I remember reading. Or it was after watching a scary movie with my parents, and I was like, "I'm going to read some of my books so I can uh, uh, not have to think about the scary movie I just saw before <laughs> I go to bed." And uh, no, no, did not help because it was a very graphic depiction of uh, rotting undead corpses being forced to eternally row an undead ship. Yeah, not not the greatest thing to read before you go to bed. Uh, yeah, that especially for a child, I can see yes. how that might be a bit upsetting. <laughs> yeah, but the third know. verse I that they found saw that stuff when I was very young, so I was never faced by it. Mm. The, the third verse that they found starts to make them question what they're doing a little bit. Their voices like secret rivers flow to hold the perils deep below. So, yeah. They start to question like what's going on behind the scenes. Is there more to this whole thing than just the sisters? But then in the fourth book, they find the verse. But when at last their voices cease, the land will find a final peace. Your first thought's like, okay, yeah. They're going to beat the sisters and it's going to get rid of the corruption for good. Perfect. The land's going to be happy. Uh, no, that is not the case. After uh, the fourth sister is dealt with... They quickly find out that, uh, yeah, a final piece yep. just meant... Is that what it means? Means, yeah, everything dies. It's like, everything's going to be peaceful. There's no life left at all. So, uh, the four sisters, while slowly leaking corruption, uh, 
essentially served as a seal for a giant eldritch abomination sealed in the center of uh, the continent. And when it was unsealed, it started to spew out toxins that were just leaching life from absolutely everything it touched. And uh, then come into play the previous series where they had to call on the seven dragons that the prince had gained respect of in the previous series. They had to call upon them and the power of friendship to win the day. I mean, it's the strongest thing on Earth. Yeah, can't be beat. But yeah, yeah that whole thing just kind of flipped my mind. Like, because I, reading that prophecy thing, especially all four verses through the final book, I was like, okay, the final sister is going to be the biggest bad, obviously, because uh, the land's going to be saved. I did not think in the slightest that uh, it didn't mean something else. Start getting really worried when they killed the final one, and it's like, oh man, there's like half a book here still. Oh no. Yep. Like, "Mm, something's off. Yeah, that was my reaction when I was reading the Mistborn series, and I was like, man, so they're releasing the power at the end of the second book out of three. That's a weird choice. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, I can, uh, I I enjoy when uh, series do stuff like that, where they Mm -hmm. play with prophecies and have characters interpret a prophecy one way only for it to play out in a very different way. Because especially since that uh, book series, despite being a little on the darker side at times, was targeted for a younger audience, um, it was the first instance where, uh, I guess, something showed me that sometimes there can be more than one meaning behind something. Yeah. That actually uh, makes me think about one of the sessions I had for today, which is the video game Undertale, and I think I know where you. I think I know where I'm going with this. <laughs> oh yes, I do. Yeah, and that uh, is another good one for this episode. Yeah, when I absolutely played with some fucking video game tropes to really punish people for believing in them. Yeah, because it it kind of plays like your standard RPG that when you fight monsters and beat them. You get uh, XP, and that puts up your levels. And then at the end of the game, it does the rug pull if you don't know the trick of the game when you go in. It's like, oh, uh, it's execution po- yeah, execution yeah. points for killing things, and it's levels of violence. So it's how many levels of violence you've committed. Yeah. Because yeah, you can actually beat the game without killing a single thing, and that's kind of the true ending to the game. Yeah, because yeah right there's in the, the tutorial, three possible endings. Yeah. yeah in the tutorial, your first taste of combat, if you fight the dummy... And the person's like, no, that's wrong. You should never fight. Never resort to violence. Yeah, so it it gives you hints, but there's very subtle ways of covering it. Because like, your first instance of any encounter is with Flowey, who tries to give you hearts to show you love. But at that point, you're kind of encouraged to dodge them based on video game tropes that you remember from your past. And that is the right decision to make. Um but then you're introduced to a like mother figure who doesn't want you to fight and just wants you to stay at home and be safe. Uh, and so eventually, when you do choose to run away, uh, you do go through that training segment where she teaches you don't be violent to things, but you kind of get the feeling of that could very well just be her being an overly protective person who doesn't want you to leave the house. Um, so it's very easy for you to get in the situation of like, the first time you have a random encounter with an enemy, you're just going to fight them and defeat them. You're not going to try and peacefully walk away from this situation and Um, the cool thing too is a lot of video games like this rpgs you have to fight bosses in order to progress the story so a character dying your first time through you might be like oh well i had to do it 
I had to progress the story when that's not the case. And that's how the game does it so beautifully that it plays on your understanding on how this type of game tends to work and then just completely says, no, you did it wrong. Yeah. Um, other things that this game did that I thought were freaking brilliant was uh, when you get to the... So if you're playing through a pacifist run, one of your favorite characters is probably um, one of the characters who's designed to be one of your favorite is Sans, who's just the skeleton who tells ca- terrible jokes. Uh, Matt, you'd really like him. Uh, yeah, case in point. Um, but uh, if you play through the quote-unquote genocide run where you kill everything you come across, because there's the three tiers to the runs. There's the pacifist where you don't kill anything. There's like what most people playing through the game normally would do, which is you fight things as they come up, but you're not going to make a point of ensuring every single being in the map dies out. Uh, and then there's, yeah, the genocide run where you make sure everything dies. Like you will run around in an area until there are no more random encounters because you've killed everything in that area. Um, it's kind getting... of sad too, because when you finally succeed in killing everything, you can still run into uh, the random encounters, except the screen pops up and uh, you just get the forlorn text saying, but no one was there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the when you get to the end, one of the final bosses, if you're doing that genocide run, is you have to fight against Sans, who is your buddy all throughout the peaceful run. Uh, and he is an incredibly difficult boss fight. But in addition to that, he also calls you out beforehand, where it like, reads your save data. He'll call you a murderer, talk about how many creatures you've killed, talk about how many times he's defeated you, because as a part of the game, you're going to lose the boss fight, load a prior save, and try and find him again. But he reads your save data, can tell how many times he's defeated you in the past, calls you out for having to go through so many efforts to do it. Like, it's a lot of stuff that, unless you played early Resident... Not Resident Evil. Um, oh, God. Splinter, nope. Metal Gear Solid. Uh, uh, Metal Gear Solid, thank you. Psychomantis. Psychomantis, that's exactly the boss I was thinking of. I see you like to like... play Castlevania. Yeah, it's the kind of stuff you're just not used to experiencing from video games where the characters reference stuff about video games and about you as a player. Um, so that was super cool. Yeah, it does a really good job of it. And again, Metal Gear Solid is actually another good example of the the game doing that, where it kind of leaves the game and challenges your expectations. Now, the Metal Gear Solid one's kind of a minor one. It's like an oh shit moment. But uh, another game that actually kind of does the whole uh, messing with your expectations of what you're doing well is actually Bioshock. Yes. And then the question is like, are you playing the game because that's what you're supposed to be doing? Are you making a choice? Yeah, uh, I I would say it's less so with two and three. One is the full one that has that like psychological dilemma in it, and when you get to the would you kindly reveal scene, it's the kind of game that completely changes how you think about video games because you're like, am I doing this because I enjoy playing video games, or am I doing this because that's the right thing to do? And yeah, it's it's one of those games that can definitely change how you think about video games. Yeah, there's definitely quite a few of those video games that play with the trip of your expectation of what the video game's doing, and then kind of tries to flip it on you. But I think Undertale is definitely the biggest one, if you had to look at all like the video games like have been played. Uh, one that will probably come close would be Doki Doki Literature Club. Yes. Yeah. And, and that one, I think just the fact that you have to go through your computer to do things to play the game is like such a cool concept that I never would have thought of before that game. 
because I believe to get certain runs, you have to like delete character files to like restart the game and remove them, or you can mm-hmm. save files and try to insert them back in the game afterwards to get a bunch of alternate endings. Yeah, but also it can be a little uh, off-putting though when you look at it on the Steam page and see sprite-colored anime girls, Doki Doki Literal Literature Club, and then see the first tag, psychological horror. To be fair, uh, I think a lot of people might have misunderstood too, because like a lot of games, they put psychological horror on. I know 5D chess has psychological horror as a tag. Well, yeah, that's 5D chess. <laughs> so, in a similar vein, I think another uh, game that we don't have to have a huge discussion about, but does the sort of thing of playing with your expectations, uh, would actually be Banjo and Kazooie, kind of, because <laughs> a lot of games in that era had built in ways to cheat and get extra lives or stuff like that. Just because it was a mechanism, originally, I think they were holdovers from developers trying to be able to test the game out fully and give themselves extra life to test usually, it. Usually, yeah. That's usually how it started. But Banjo-Kazooie had a full-on room where you could go to enter cheats to use them, uh, but played with it a little bit instead of it just being you able to cheat to make the game easier. Because if you cheated too much, Grunny straight up like threatened to delete your save, and if you did it one more time... Crunchy followed through on her threat and deleted your save because you were cheating too much to get through the main game and not making it fun anymore. And also, she doesn't just delete your save, she removes your ability to save while you're in that game instance. Right, yes. So you're able to continue playing, but you can no longer save, and your old save has been deleted. Yeah, it's it's great. So that's... We don't have to have a long discussion, but I feel like if we were talking about games that acknowledge the fact that they're a game and play with what you understand about games, I think that one's another good one to mention. Definitely is. Although, speaking of other games that, uh... This one's a bit different, um... But it's another video game that I had prepared to talk about. Banjo and Kazooie just kind of came out of nowhere when we were talking about games fucking with your save file and reading save data that I thought of. But the game I had prepared to talk about today uh, is another kind of weird one uh, in that it is uh, Stanley Parable. Uh, I don't know if either of you have played that game. Yep. Um, I'm familiar with it. That game... I had a bit of an impact on me in that it completely changed my understanding of what a game could or should be, because that game is one of those games where there's nothing you're striving for, you're not trying to accomplish a specific goal, your only goal is to experience the game as it is, you have a narrator who can be quite antagonistic towards you, and like... It's just a fucking experience playing that game. It feels weird to call it a game and not just a virtual experience that you can go through. Um, yeah, the part I where, like, uh, people had a, the same argument with Gone Home, for example, which itself was like, I, I would call it a game. It was a very fun... It's more of like a... I think the issue with Stanley Parable and Gone Home is they play more like point-and-click adventure games without the standard point-and-click adventure stuff. Yeah, they they have all the emotion and feeling of a point-and-click adventure game without actually involving very much point-and-click puzzle solving. Yeah, um, and that's the thing. I guess when it comes to Stanley Parable, if you consider if you don't consider it a game, you could technically not consider Portal a game, I guess. Yeah, I suppose in a similar sense you could. Um, yeah, it's mostly just navigating the world. But it's one of those... It is the type of game where... You are rewarded for playing and just figuring out what happens and stuff. Or but not they will do the game for like seven years. Five years. It's five years five that years. you have to not play the game, then you're rewarded. Uh, but Wait, also, just like 
Yeah, there's an achievement in that game uh, called Go Outside, which is don't play the game for five years straight and then play the game again. Oh my god. Uh, Speaking of which, I could earn that any day. It has been over five years since I last played that game. I just uh, have to launch the game to earn that achievement. uh, All on the fun side, just mentioning that achievement, uh, there's a game on the PlayStation 3 called Flower that had something similar, which is don't play the game for a few weeks and then come back. Yeah, the the game Journey also had the same thing. Yeah, Well, Journey and Flower was the same company, so I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, but this one also had a similar Banjo and Kazooie moment where you can open up the dev console and try and input cheats to get around stuff in Stanley Parable. But the narrator, because he's kind of antagonistic throughout the whole game, recognizes what you're doing, what you're doing, and puts you on timeout if you try and do it too much. Timeout being he locks you inside of a room with no wall, uh, with no windows or doors, just a simple table inside of it, and tells you you can leave in roughly 500 years. Um, and then. Unless you shut down the game, that's just what your game is for the foreseeable future of the next 500 years. I'm curious um, if it does actually have a timer to put you back in the game, even though it would never be used. I'm curious if they went that far to code it that way. I So if I remember correctly, because it has been, as I said, over five years since I've played this game, I think it's a, a scaling penalty. So I think the first time you try and use the dev console, he calls you out and puts you in timeout for like a minute and that one absolutely does have a timer where he will let you out after the minute um but if you continue to do it he'll eventually just declare you're on timeout for 500 years i would not be surprised based on the way the game's developed that they included the countdown timer that counts out 500 years even though no one's ever going to be able to leave the game running for 500 years straight just to see it happen True. but the way the game's developed, I would not be the least bit surprised to hear that there actually was a counter counting out 500 years. Anyways, Stanley Parable. That's another one that... Uh, I would say it changed my perceptions of what a game could be, because there are other games in that same vein that don't play like normal games and don't have goals that you're striving to achieve. Uh, but that was one of the first ones I played where, as I was playing it, I thought to myself, wait, they can do this? They can make a game that's just this? And yet, at no point in the process did I put the game down and stop playing it. I continued to play it because I wanted to see what kind of shit I could do with that information. Yeah, and very similarly, like uh, one of the games we just mentioned, Journey, also changed how I thought, or what I thought about games and what made a game. It was like, Journey does not need any sort of like action or dialogue or character interaction to have a good story it's like journey has all it well it only has the journey you start and your goal is the top of the mountain and you go and it is just a beautiful spectacle the entire way yeah i'd say there's been a couple games over the course of my career as a video game player that have uh broadened my scope of what i am willing to call a game because I feel like when I first started playing games, if someone told me like there wasn't a boss at the end of the game, I'd be like, "Really? Like what? What's that about?" And at this point, if someone tells me like this is a game, you sit in front of your computer and the screen's black the entire time, but there's weird sounds playing through your headphones, I'd be like, "Man, that game sounds fucking awesome." <laughs> uh, so, I think the stuff that I'm willing to count a vid- uh, count as a video game has changed very drastically over the years to the point where. I'd be willing to consider a lot of stuff that other people probably wouldn't consider a video game video games, and that's based purely on some 
very key pieces of my architecture uh, as a person that have changed my perceptions on what a video game can be. There we go. That's me answering uh, our fans' question of what pieces of media have changed your perceptions or philosophies. That sounded like the close of an essay. Jesus. Well, it wasn't the close because we're maybe halfway through this podcast. I don't know how long it's going to be or how it's been. <laughs> so there is an amount of podcasts left before we're done anyways. Uh, actually, on the topic of uh, video games, too, there is two more that I want to mention that are kind of close. And that's Metal Gear Solid 2 and Eternal Darkness for fucking with you while you're playing the game to think the game is broken. Oh, broken or yes. sentient. Because Eternal Darkness does the thing where it'll make you accidentally delete your save file or blue screen and stuff like that, uh, which uh, it's tied to the sanity meter. And at first you think, oh, the sanity meter just means I'm going to see some weird shit, like heads floating, things exploding. But no, it will literally do parts where like, oh, you just deleted your save file and shut it off or the game blue screened and no indicators really what's going on, except for if you're really paying attention. Uh, yeah. The reason I put Middle Gear Solid 2 in that is it's the only game because... Hell, Metal Gear Solid 2 in itself probably changed my perspective on a lot of things, especially if you go back now, because everything it talked about, about like, uh, you know, controlling populaces with media, that stories you make up, and algorithms to put people in the bubbles, it's pretty much the whole plot of Metal Gear Solid 2, to the point that the one that's fucking with you in this way is the AI system that will make it sound like, your gate, like you died in the game, so it'll do the dead screen animation, but in the top corner where it would show your body, it's you still playing the game, so you have to know that the game's trying to get you to stop shutting itself off essentially because the ai yeah. is the game and it's doing whatever it can to stop you from getting to the end of the game to shut it off <laughs> yeah speaking of metal gear solid the good old fish and mailed that one uh is a peak moment of the game making you think it's over by having the mission failed screen come up but it's, it says fish and mailed instead of mission failed just so you have a subtle clue that the game's not actually over or, or campbell the ai version will call you and say the mission's over you can turn off the game now yeah. <laughs> we did it. You go home. Uh, so another one that's... Uh, it's more of subverting a genre uh, type thing. And uh, I'm sure you guys probably expected this from me, but the Scream franchise. Specifically, oh, yeah. Scream 1. Of course. Uh, because I think it this kind of plays the same way as the uh, Agatha Christie book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, where the whole concept is Horror movies and murder mysteries tend to have their ways because they have set tropes that tend to get followed. And in Agatha Christie, it did the unreliable narrator when one of the rules of murder mystery is, you know, the character we're following can't be the murderer. And then it's just like, well, fuck that rule, right? Yeah. And what Scream did was it took the tropes of the slasher genre, acknowledged them, and then not only did it subvert them, but it also then did them in ways that weren't the standard so two killers was unheard of before the scream movie uh so that was something that people were like oh you can only have one killer but nope there was multiple in this one uh jamie fox's character as a whole just blatantly telling everyone what the rules are yeah was, yeah you uh can't have sex you can't drink you can't do drugs and whatever you do did not say you'll be right back i'll be right back that was probably my favorite part of the movie. Oh, it's great. Uh, the recent one that came out has a callback to that scene where a person's like, oh, I'm going to get a beer. And he goes to go downstairs. And the person, he looks back. He's like, oh, well, when he's good, he's like, I'm going to get a beer. I'll be right back. And he stops at the door, looks over to the person, and they both just kind of point and go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, I think a lot of that, though, was probably due to more so the writing of Wes Craven and not so much the movie itself. I think you can see bits of him doing this with other franchises at the time, which he was working on uh, Friday the 13th, obviously. So I think very much it's this was his chance to kind of just play with the concept. And it came off very well to the point that it's like, I think my idea of subverting expectations solely comes from what happened in Scream. Yeah, that's fair. It certainly seemed to do a very in-depth job of just that. Well, it was good enough that it revitalized the horror genre, which was pretty much Mm. on its way out at the time, too. I mean, that happens when you have, you know, Friday the 13th, 7, and Jason goes to hell, 22. Yep. Uh, Alright, so uh, another one for me. This one's a weird one, and like kind of a deep cut depending on your views on certain topics. I don't think it's actually that deep of a cut. Um, but have either of you played uh, Legend of Zelda Phantom Hourglass? Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, so that one uh, I definitely found uh, very uh, weird at points because uh, as you're playing through it you have to ascend this uh, ghost tower and you have a specific timer to ascend it. But every once in a while, you had to solve puzzles in ways that I was not considering was a valid way you could solve a puzzle. Like, there's a certain puzzle where uh, you have a map in front of you, but the map seems to be inverted. uh, And you have to find a way to copy it onto your paper uh, below, but you also want it to be inverted. Yeah, and it's on a DS, and you spend, like, a solid, like... 30 minutes staring at this puzzle trying to figure out how to solve it and the solution is to take your ds which is folds in two and then close it so that you're essentially putting the game to sleep but also pressing the two screens together and then when you open it up you have now pressed the puzzle from the top down onto the bottom to solve this puzzle and it's just like that was the biggest one that sticks out the most in my mind but i do remember there being a lot of those like little tiny puzzles where it's just like you want me to do fucking what right now? And the solutions were just like, I never would have guessed that closing my DS the way I do when I'm done playing and I'm willing to put it to sleep and go away and do other things is exactly what I need to do in order to solve this puzzle and thus continue playing this game. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a lot of those throughout the uh, Zelda series. Like, not as many on the main console one. Yeah, it was more there- uh, Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks. Yeah, there's a lot of those on the handheld consoles. Uh, little puzzles that work out in ways that kind of play with the device that they're being presented to you on. And there, there was also uh, in the Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons games, there was a shop in each of the games where there was one door that was open that you could play or that you could access. But there was one door that was always closed and no one knew how to access it. Then the Game Boy Advance came along. People plugged the game in to play on their new Game Boy Advances, and the door was open. It was the Advance shop that only opened if you were playing on a Game Boy Advance. I vaguely remember that, and that's just fucked. If you want to really talk about the main thing in Zelda that always keeps you like thinking about reality, it's the windmill paradox. Oh, yeah. Yes, that one broke my fucking brain as a child, and that... You, as an adult, learn a song from a man who was driven crazy by this song, and then you go back in time and teach him the song to drive him crazy so that he can teach it to you as an adult. It's 
That... It's the song that only exists in a paradoxical loop. Yep. That song has uh, changed how I think about time travel so much. Like, there's a similar thing in, um, oh, fuck. What's the uh, series about the British people who an asteroid passes past Earth and then they get superpowers from it? Uh, Misfits, that one? Uh, No, Misfits. (laughs) Yeah, Misfits. (laughs) Thank you. Um, The money, right? Yeah, the money. I've talked about this before. I I haven't talked about it on the podcast. But there's specifically a character who, uh, towards the end of the series, well, there's a character throughout the series who's called the Power Broker, so he gains the superpower where he can take other people's powers and then sell them to other people. Um, And so, uh, he gives someone the power to travel back in time five years, and he's like, "Uh, you're going to need this power. I remember my first client came to me and paid me $5,000 for my first power, so you need to go back in time and pay me $5,000 to buy that power from me. And the character who's about to go back in time is like, I don't have $5,000 to buy this power from me. He's like, don't worry. I've held on to the money that the first guy paid me ever since then as like a memory of what I went through. So I'll give it to you so you can go back in time to give it to me. It's like, where the fuck did that money come from? When was it minted? (laughs) How does this money exist at all in time right now? The the upsetting thing about that is they could have fixed it by just saying, oh, don't worry. I'll give you $5,000 that I have right now. Yeah, he could have said, I'll give you $5,000, you're going to go back in time, so I'm really just giving it to myself. But no, no. he explicitly says, I've saved the $5,000 that were given to me, this I'll give it to exact... you so you can give it to me. This is the exact, in cash, $5,000 that time traveled from now, to you to give to me to give to you. Also, why is he holding on to f- the same $5,000 for five <laughs> years? Yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where now every time, and this all started with the fucking uh, Song of Storms from Legend of Zelda, every time something, like, paradoxical happens with time travel, I spend, like, an hour thinking about what's the fucking logic of this and how it doesn't make any fucking sense. It is, like, my metric for deciding good time travel versus bad time travel in fiction is whether it creates unbreakable paradoxes like that. And it all starts with Zelda. Got to see if we can find an earlier one so we can stop blaming Zelda for it. Never. I want to blame Zelda for it. <laughs> if anything, Zelda probably just went back in time and gave its own paradox to itself. Yeah. Yeah, it actually didn't orig- originate with Zelda. It originated with Misfits. Uh, yeah. But then Zelda saw that and like, let's go back in time uh, and teach it to ourselves. And then Zelda inspired Misfits, which gave it to Zelda to go back in time and give it to it themselves. That's how that trope came to... Well, not trope, that paradox came to exist. That sounds like something Miyamoto would do. Invent time travel just so he can perpetuate a paradox. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I agree. That As I was saying it, I was memeing it. As soon as I was done, I realized, yeah, that actually does sound like something he would do. So we're currently living inside the paradoxical loop. Yes. I mean, technically, we're outside of it. It's the information that's looped. Yeah, in fact, we're outside of it in both senses, because... The jump back in time has already happened. We are past the end of the loop. The loop happened in our past. So I can't say for sure that any of us were ever actually born, because there is that infinite loop between us being born and today. So who knows for sure how long we've actually been alive, but yeah. Yeah, We could have just sprang into existence now. It's like just when that loop came to a close. because uh, Because of that paradoxical loop in history... Life began after the Misfits came out. That, for all we know, that's when life began on Earth. Well, I have to add something else to this list of things that changed my outlook on life, and that's Matt saying, what if we just sprang into existence five minutes ago? 
Yeah, that one's a whole fucking thing. Well, um, another thing that changed my life and how I view things is just like video games doing this and making us have these thoughts. <laughs> things that make like, you think, I... man. Something uh, else that changed my life is the friends I made along the way. Now that's bullshit. You change. guys haven't had any impact on my life. Good. Actually, I know that's a lie because uh, a little podcast we do called Pharaoh Evangelion, I know. Uh, has had an impact on your life. I'm not saying it's good, but it has had an impact. It has absolutely had an impact, and I am not willing to say for the better. In fact, I'm just not going to say it. You can choose to interpret that, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, so another story that I want to talk about, and this one's kind of a, a video game and a series, uh, but it's called When the Seagulls Cry by uh, Ryokishi07. Oh, yeah. So uh, I was thinking I was going to do Higurashi, the first one when the cicadas cry. But the reason I want to go with the second one is because the thing that really blew my mind was it's telling the same story over eight times. But how it does it is as each. It, so it kills off all the characters at the end of the first story. And then the second story is going back to the beginning of the loop. And so it's kind of like that time loop thing. But every time we see the story unfold the killer, so it's a murder mystery, the killer is still the same and you're trying to solve who it is, but the events get more magical every time you see it, so it's getting harder to see what the truth is as you go through and, he, like, the creator of it has even stated, you can just go through the first story arc and solve the murder, like, there's no extra work needed but the story looping on itself gives you more information, but you have to figure it out from the magic That's actually fucking fascinating yeah, so the first one, like, everyone just dies normal. You don't see any magical aspects. The second one, you'll see a witch appear and, like, curse somebody. And then by the time you get to, the, like, the end of the eighth arc, there's people flying across the room shooting magic blasts at each other in, like, a pocket dimension. Demon goats. Yep. So it's a really cool story where it's telling the same story over and over, but it's showing you layers of the story that are applied with magic. So it's kind of diluting the truth the further you go in rereading it. So, like, the truth is still there, but it might be harder to piece together just because of all the fantastical, not real magic that's happening. Yeah, and it's changing their perspectives on everything, too. So you mm. kind of have to just rely on the rules that the story gives you, which is things written in, written in red are uh, absolute... Uh, or wait, everything written in red is absolute. Everything written in blue is... a. Th probable theory and everything written in gold is what everyone on the island believes or a majority of people on the island believe that is that's a lot yeah uh it's not a big spoiler but to give you an example of how that those three things will fuck with you uh there's a character in the story that we find out was never alive during the case of the story they died before it happened and it was covered up so you get a red truth saying that there is this many people on the island and it's including that person, but it never said there was uh, less. It just said there's no more than this amount of people in red. And then later on, it says in gold, this person's alive. <laughs> and then in blue, you get the they've been dead the whole time. And all three of those work together to put together. Oh, they're probably dead. Right. Yeah, because if everyone there believes someone's alive, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone is alive. Yep. 
Yeah, that's definitely a series. If you haven't gone through it, it is quite the trip and it's very fun. And you can, as I said, you can solve it right off the first go. Yeah. So like I've only, I know I've only seen the first and the second loop. So I've been meaning to go back and actually rewatch the whole thing. Uh, Sorry, what's the title of this one again? Uh, when the Seagulls Cry, uh, though I believe most things just put it as like a half translation. So it's Umi Neko when uh, they cry. Uh, there was actually uh, a PlayStation 4 upscale of the visual novel, which I would recommend going through, and you can get it on Steam as well. I might have to look into this. This actually does sound fascinating. Yep, it's a really good series. Uh, and I sadly haven't had a chance to read the most recent one he's done. Higurashi, the original series he did, has the same time loop mechanic where it does a similar thing, but that one kind of requires you to... Uh, Let's just say there's some things you can't figure out on your own that are kind of crucial to solving it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this next one's uh, kind of a short one. Uh, and I feel like Matt's going to have not a huge amount to add to this conversation, but I don't know, maybe he's watched a Let's Play or two. Um, but PT is the next thing I want to talk about. Because <laughs> that, that was a whole fucking thing, playing through that the first fucking time. Of just like an endless loop where you're walking in circles and things change ever so slightly as you progress. And it's just in, I would say for something where I felt like I was in no danger at any point in it, I still felt incredibly uncomfortable the entire time and very scared for many parts of it. And it, it was a whole fucking thing. So here's the fun thing about that. A lot of people recently found out that, the uneasy feeling uh, is most likely because the uh, Lisa character that shows up is programmed to actually literally be behind you at every moment in the game, except when you see her. That's fucked. That, yeah, Ugh. someone broke the camera and looked out, and then through the whole game, she's always behind you, like just right oh behind God. you. She's strapped to your back, so you can never see her, but until she actually pops up in other uh, spawn locations, when she disappears from your back. Oh my God. Fuck that. Um, Matt, how much experience do you have with PT? I sadly haven't seen anything on PT. So, are you at least familiar with what PT is? Uh, from what you've said, I guess so. So, PT, uh, the title is just short for Playable Trailer, because it was essentially originally designed as a trailer for the new, uh, Silent Hill game that Kojima and Guillermo del Toro right, yeah, were working on. I do, I, do seem, I do seem to remember people holding on to PT on their playstations or something yeah, konami got rid of it you couldn't download it anymore yeah and people yeah. started selling their playstations with pt save on it yeah yeah because after the falling out between uh konami and kojima uh they just decided they weren't gonna make the game and so they just became a hot commodity having access to this pt which was just yeah it was very unsettling but also a great demo of what the fuck a Silent Hills game could be, because... Yeah, Del Toro and Kojima together, that would have been a complete mindfuck. Yeah, because that's the key thing, is a lot of people put Silent Hill and Resident Evil in the same light, and at least from my perspective, I would always put Silent Hill as more of a psychological horror, and Resident Evil as more of just, like, a thriller slash kind of combat game in a lot of... Uh, the ones from the series. I mean, if you want well, to look at the aspect, Silent Hill is more horror than Resident Evil, uh, but Resident yeah. Evil is always kind of over the place for what exactly type of horror it is. Yeah. Uh, so, 
Silent Hill's well, one of the key themes throughout a lot of Silent Hill games is just different characters uh, punishing themselves, and a lot of what's happening is happening in their mind because of their own sins from the past or shit like that. So it's always just deeply unsettling and creepy and scary, but always perfectly tailored for the person who happens to be going through it. Um, and yeah, that PT was a huge mindfuck, uh, mindfuck of a trailer for a game that was never, well, is never going to get made now. Uh, and a great sign of things they could have fucking done that just would have broke people's brain if the game ever actually got made. Yep. Well, I think it's time I'll do my grand finale one, uh, which is the last <laughs> one I have. And also the one I think is probably had the biggest uh, changing of perspectives uh, to me. And that is, to no surprise, Neon Genesis Evangelion. See, here's the thing. For those of you viewers who haven't picked up from the multiple times it's been referenced so far, me and Keith are making a podcast together about Neon Genesis Evangelion. And I'd say we're roughly halfway through the series and that we've watched the original anime and we've watched uh, End of Evangelion but we still have the Rebuild series to watch, so there is still shit left in store for me with that series, but I can already kind of see where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm not going to lie that Rebuild has also had an effect on me, but it's more so the presence of everything that's came before, so really, at this point, I'm talking up to the end of Evangelion, Uh, so I I feel a lot more comfortable speaking about it because I'm not spoiling it to my co-host from Farewell Evangelion, who is (laughs) going through it for the first time, right? Uh, Yeah. So... I'm sure Peter can already kind of surmise the idea of it, but the way the story is told in Evangelion, or Neon Genesis Evangelion, and uh, the end of Evangelion, is such a strong departure for anything that existed before that. So me, back in 2005, or 2000, encountering it for the first time, going through for that period, uh, it throws a lot of stuff at you that makes you think, and then the way the story kind of ends with a, it was never really about the big robots and the conspiracies it was always about shinji learning to like be cool with himself and learning that like he has worth and he can grow from that and being like you know in my early teens uh late youth period that makes you think a lot yeah it's a series full of trauma and also giant robot fights and also weird conspiracy theories and yet, the thing you're supposed to focus on is none of that, but the emotional growth the characters go through. Yeah, it's just fair, I guess. Yeah, it's just it. I experienced this whole series at a very informative part of my life, where I was absorbing things in, like you know, that period where you're like you're kind of basing your personality and way you view things around what you're consuming. And Neon Genesis was in there. And I turned out pretty good because I didn't take the I need to be depressed thing from it. Never had an emo phase. Good for me. Yeah. I don't know if your general lack of ability to feel emotions is a sign that you turned out all right, Keith. <laughs> I raised my AT field. Fuck. <laughs> I'll pretend I understand what that means. You know what, Matt? I will too. <laughs> I have a better understanding than you do, but I'm also just going to pretend I understand. <laughs> But yeah, that, that's the big one for me. Neon Genesis Evangelion, it's just a very informative part of my life, and it hits on a lot of hard or deep topics and doesn't really kind of shy away from a lot of them and also encourages the whole idea of, like, you know, change starts with you, 
So you got to put the effort in, but also there's not an answer for everything. Sorry, Peter. Uh, and sometimes you have to be okay with that and put your own answers. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so the last one I wanted to talk about. Um, this one isn't a big emotional journey for me like Neon Genesis was for Keith. But this is just one of those stories that really made me think about the world that I live in. Is it Octodad? Uh, and- no, it's not Octodad. It should be Octodad. You know what? I might just edit right now and make it Octodad, but... No, it's not Octodad. Uh, have either of you seen the movie Moon before, starring Sam Rockwell? Oh, jeez. Yes. No, actually. I feel bad spoiling this one, because this one is a fantastic film, but fuck it. You know what? Let's. We've already been spoiling things all along. Let's just spoil this, too. Um, so... Moon is a movie about uh, a man who uh, works as a miner on a three-year contract on the moon. So uh, they have this hugely automated uh, facility on the moon that's specifically designed to mine helium-3 to replace all the fossil fuels we use on Earth that have been killing our planet and have been slowly running out. Uh, So they create a mining facility on the moon to mine helium-3 to power everything. Uh, And as stated, this facility is fully automated, except they need one human up there who can do general repairs. And so the story follows Sam Rockwell's character, who's just ending his three-year contract to do that. Um, and so we kind of follow his adventures on this planet. Um, and very early on in the movie, uh, we see him crash his rover into a uh, one of the big mining rigs. And so we get a harsh cut, and then we cut to Sam Rockwell's character lying in a bed, uh, hearing some of the robots talk back to the base back on Earth. Uh, and then he wakes up, and he's being told that this is the start of his three-year uh, contract on the moon. And as the movie progresses, you start to realize something's going on, because, I mean... Did it just start with the end of his contract and then cut back to the beginning of his contract? What's going on here? Uh, But he's being told that he's not allowed to leave the base for the time being because there's a storm incoming and they're going to send up some more robots to fix the broken uh, machines and then they'll get it up and running uh, for him. And he ends up uh, essentially faking an emergency so he can get out and discovers the rover that he crashed into the giant mining rig but seated inside the rover is Sam Rockwell's character, the guy who was just ending his three-year contract. And it eventually gets revealed that uh, instead of hiring an individual to work on the moon for three years and paying him lots of money, uh, the company that's mining the moon has just developed cloning technology. And so the clones last for roughly three years, and then due to the way they cloned them, they start to break down and die. So... They just have a whole bunch of clones that they convince are on a three-year contract on the moon uh, to do mining, and then they get to go back to Earth, and then at the end of the three years, they just die. And it's one of those movies that's both a mindfuck in how you're kind of watching it and what you're realizing as the plot develops, but also kind of causes you to think a lot about stuff, because I have never thought about whether or not clones should have rights and whether developing clones to solve problems that uh, natural-born humans couldn't or wouldn't or would be too difficult to get them to do, whether it's morally right or wrong to have clones do that job for us, but not tell them that they're clones and that that's their entire existence. 
And it was one of the things that we were watching that movie. I had to grapple with that and come to my own decisions about what would be right or wrong in that situation. And I don't know. It's just a movie that had left me like sitting alone silently in my home for like a solid half an hour. Just like thinking about what I just watched and what I was going to take away from that movie. That's fair. Hmm. So even though I've spoiled it, I still recommend you watch it. Yeah. Mostly because Sam Rockwell's just fucking great. Yeah, probably we'll end up watching it. And the whole that whole plot of being clones stationed to do somewhere reminds me of another movie with the Tom Cruise that I saw with a similar kind of concept. I can't remember the name of it though. And I don't think it was anywhere near as good as uh, Moon. The one the movie that you mentioned. I can't think of a clone one with Tom Cruise, but there's the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Oblivion, I think, is the one you're thinking of. Now. Oh, yeah, Oblivion, yeah. Yes. Where uh, aliens take over Earth and are mining it for all its resources, but they clone a bunch of this one guy who defended the planet and convince him that uh, he needs to p- defend the planet from uh, the aliens, uh, when in fact he's defending it from the last humans left on the planet uh, for the aliens. Yes. Yeah, that was a whole fucking movie. I mean, it's got Tom Cruise uh, starring alongside Tom Cruise, so if you're into that, it's pretty good. Well then, do we have any other uh, topics to talk about within this recommendation? I've got another one to bring up. What do you got for us, Matt? I've got one that uh, changed, and I would say enriched the variety of genres that I consume in my day-to-day leisure. Because up until uh, the point of watching this particular movie, pretty much my only... the only genres that I ever really partook in was action, adventure, fantasy, comedy. Just that, that kind of closed vein. Yep. But then, one day, I saw a movie listing for an anime movie by the name of Your Name. <laughs> And I thought to myself, I've got nothing else to do on that day. That's my and, name. <laughs> and I've never seen an anime movie in theaters. So I think I'm going to go watch it. I look at the tags. And I'm, I'm just like, uh, romantic, drama. Uh, all right, it's an anime movie. I'll try it in theaters. And to my happy surprise, I was thoroughly enthralled by the movie. Thoroughly drawn into uh, the characters, their well-written interactions, their dilemmas. As the like the two main characters, the love interests, they uh, end up swapping bodies throughout the movie, and it goes through their day-to-day life as uh, the different individual minds in the bodies and how they're trying to interact and blend in with the other person's friends, so they don't seem too out of place. Uh, everything just revolved around character interactions and character growth and development, and it was so enthralling that I just needed more. That by the time the movie was finished, I felt kind of empty. <laughs> like, oh, I need this. I need more of this kind of this kind of genre. Uh, that is fair. That reminds me of a movie that had a similar effect on me. Uh, by the name of A Silent Voice. Um, Ooh. 
which is uh, so it was an animated film that I just kind of stumbled across on Netflix and decided to watch, or an anime film that I stumbled across on Netflix. Um, but uh, deals with some pretty heavy topics like bullying and also suicide. Uh, in that it involves a character who, when they were children, uh, bullied the male lead, bullied the female lead when they were children. Uh, because she was deaf and required hearing aids, so he constantly bullied her for that. Um, and then as he grows up, he starts to realize that his life's going nowhere, and he's been a terrible person, and maybe this is just what he deserves, so he decides to end his whole life, uh, but backs out at the last minute, and then stumbles across the girl he used to bully, and then it follows his growth as a person and his kind of path towards redemption, um, and deals with some pretty heavy topics, as I said, but also deals with a lot of character stuff and a character growth and all that jazz. And it was one of those things where the first time I watched it was at the beginning of the lockdown in 2020. And over the course of that first summer, I watched it four fucking times in one season because I was just like, I need to feel things right now. And every time I watch this movie, I end up in the fetal position crying and that counts as feeling things. So I'm just going to watch this movie again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was the first one that kind of broadened me into that genre because I had watched a couple films within that genre beforehand, but that was the first one that I'd say had that strong of an impact on me. Yeah, that's fair. Well then, I'm going to call that the end of our talking about the topic. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, recommendations. Uh, what do we have for recommendations for things outside, or just things? What, what do we want to recommend to the world? Uh, I've so. got a recommendation of a game that uh, just released as a recording yesterday. Oh, It's on Steam by an indie developer, and it is called Anno Mutationum. It's uh, set in a cyberpunk setting, and it has a very interesting art style. It has a mix of pixelated graphics in a both 2D and 3D environment. And, like, the animations and just all the visuals are pulled off phenomenally for an indie developer. That sounds cool. What's it about? Um, I'm still not entirely sure. It, uh... <laughs> I'm only at the beginning of the game. I haven't really gotten much further than the tutorial. And it sort of uh, feeds you little bite-sized pieces as you go of both the overarching story. So all I know so far is that uh, the main character that you play is suffering from a uh, disease with no known cure that makes her break out in sudden violent outbursts. And I know I mean very violent outbursts, like going berserk. Nice. Uh, so normally I like to recommend something that's in line with what we're talking about, but uh, today I'm going to recommend something else, which is a series that is still ongoing as of right now that I've been enjoying. And it's called uh, Our Flags Mean Death. Uh, that's the pirate one by Taiko Watiti, right? Yeah, and it what? is uh, amazingly great, and the more you get into the series, and the fun thing about it, it's based off true events, but it's Taika Waititi kind of playing with it. If you liked his other work, uh, such as, you know, what we do in the shadows, it's very much that type of humor, but with pirates instead, and historical events. Nice. Yeah, it's about uh, a wealthy uh, landowner who becomes, I guess, 
unsatisfied with life and i guess mr seven up has a midlife crisis realizing he hasn't done anything important so he decides to become a pirate and then they kind of like exaggerate him becoming the pirate that he is by having you know he has paid crew members so even if they don't steal anything they still get paid and he reads them bedtime stories <laughs> oh Jesus. yeah and uh one of the cast members is hodor from uh uh game of thrones so uh, definitely a lot of uh, known actors in it. Uh, goddamn, uh, the episode, the two episodes that just came out this week, Will Arnett shows up as Calico Jack, and it's hilarious. Oh my god. Jesus. Yeah. And then Taika Waititi's playing Blackbeard, so I'm sure you can assume the fun that's going to be with that. Yeah. Uh, Taika Waititi's. Uh form of humor has is something I've realized is exactly my form of humor. Uh, I realized this while I have enjoyed a lot of his work, I realized this in particular while watching um, Jojo Rabbit, uh, yeah. which is the story of a young boy growing up in Nazi Germany, and he has an imaginary friend of Hitler who's also played by Taiko Watiti. Yeah. Um, so yeah, watching that, it doesn't sound funny the way I'm describing it, but... Y- Watching it, I very quickly realized that Taiko Waititi's sense of humor is just my sense of humor. Oh yeah, he's definitely great, and I want to talk about uh, just something quick about Jojo Rabbit. So when the movie was coming out, uh, in an interview, someone asked him if he did any research to play Hitler accurately, and his answer was pretty much, fuck no, why would I want to research and do Hitler accurately? Yeah. (laughs) Which is, like, exact. if you're going to play Hitler in a comedy movie, that's the way you do it. You don't bother trying to play Hitler accurately. But yeah, uh, as of this episode going up, uh, the Friday following is when the last two episodes of uh, Our Flags Mean Death goes up. Nice. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to make a recommendation that I'm not sure I'm allowed to call this a recommendation, but I am because it's the recommendation I'm making. Uh, and the reason I'm not sure if I'm allowed to call it a recommendation is because it's for a thing that isn't out yet, so I haven't had a chance to play it myself, but it's something I have discovered recently and i'm very uh patiently awaiting its release uh and it's a game called cult of the lamb uh which is a game in which uh the best way i can describe it is it looks like it's somehow a cross between the binding of isaac and animal crossing uh in that yep don't worry about those two being crossed together uh it's a roguelike game you say it but i feel like i need it now yeah uh it's a roguelike game where you're developing your own cult and you take adventures into a temple below Earth to fight beasts and strengthen your cult. Uh, but also, above ground, you build up a whole cultist sanctuary where all the people in your town live. Uh, and then you also like kill non-believers who come to prophesy or proselyze false gods. And it's just... It's an adorable game that seems to have very dark tones. Uh, and honestly looks so fucking cool from what i've seen of it um so yeah i'm choosing to recommend something i haven't had a chance to play before because it's not out yet but the way it looks makes it seem like the kind of game i absolutely have to fucking that's fair i mean it's right up my alley because i accidentally started a cult in animal crossing anyway so it's not too far from what i normally do (laughs) of course Well then, uh, that's our recommendation. So did anyone uh, correctly guess our uh, topic on Instagram? 
so we had one guess uh, that was from Tachi underscore Camargo who guessed murder mysteries, which I guess isn't too far off because we did mention quite a few of those. Yeah. To be fair, those are the ones that can play with the tropes the most because murder mysteries have some of the most ingrained tropes to begin with. So I mean, it certainly is life changing. Yep. You know, murder and all and, that. Yeah, life ending, one might say. I mean, that's um, the change of life if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, so did anyone answer our question? What was our last question? So the question was, what moment would you like to see happen in Vox Machina? That probably won't. Uh, and did one, anyone answer that? No one gave us an answer because they want to see all of them. And they just want to be hopeful, I would assume. Yeah, they don't want to acknowledge that it might not happen. So they're not willing to answer the question the way we phrase it, which is fair. But the Meat Man will uh, still cometh, I believe. I think the only reasonable question after this one is, what was a form of media that changed your life or played with tropes in unexpected ways? So we were forced to answer this question. Now you answer it too. Uh... So yeah, answer that on our Instagram. And at this point, I just want to make sure to thank everyone who came in. Came in. Yeah, sure. Fuck it. Uh, thank everyone who came in and listened to today's episode. You're Remember welcome. that you can find our podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Uh, we also upload to YouTube regularly. Uh, we don't have a video form of the podcast. It's just the podcast gets uploaded to YouTube. But still, uh, the easiest way to reach out to us is absolutely through Instagram. We make posts whenever we record. We pose our questions like the one we just did via Instagram, so that's the easiest way to answer our questions. Uh, so find us on Instagram at what is my podcast about. Uh, and you can also reach out to us more directly by emailing us at what is my podcast about at gmail.com. That's what is my podcast about at gmail.com. All those words are spelt the way they are normally spelt. If you have a question or you think you know what our podcast should be about, make sure to reach out to us. And also make sure to tune back in in a fortnight when we record, or not record, when we release our next episode. And what's that going to be about, Matt? You know what? I'm not entirely sure. But from what I can gather, it has something to do with cold drinks and firearms. 